Hello, my friend, and welcome to the Mark Stuchowski Podcast, the show that's all about helping you perform at an optimum level. I am Mr. Productivity, and it is my obsession in life to teach you how to be a more productive version of yourself. And one of the ways I do that is by giving you my top five productivity tips. You just go to my homepage at mrproductivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com, and get my top five productivity tips absolutely for free. On the show today, Dan Cockerell. He spent 26 years with the Walt Disney Company. Now he and his wife have their own consulting and speaking company. We're going to talk a lot about the Disney way. How can you take the way Disney does things and apply it to your business. Whether you're a one-man operation or you have a full company, there's a lot of gold in this episode. So if you're not out walking the dog or out on the run or riding the bike, get yourself a notebook and something to write with because there is a lot of information here. Let's get right to it. Dan, welcome to the show. Mark, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. I am so excited because not only are you on the show now, but your father was on the show back in December 3rd. As as my listeners know, I'm a I'm kind of a Disney World geek. Disney World and Apple are the two companies I really admire. So I'm really thrilled that both your dad and you have been on the Mark Stuchowski podcast. Well, my uh, pension thanks you for being a big fan. <laughs> Now, what's interesting is you, you were you were gracious enough to send me your upcoming book called How's the Culture in Your Kingdom. We're going to talk a lot about that and a lot of lessons. I literally, Dan, I literally finished this book five minutes before we started the podcast. So I've really got a fresh. I was reading really hard this morning. I wanted to get it in uh, before we started recording today. Uh, listener, you're listening. It's on June 10th. We recorded this yesterday, so it's really, really fresh. But before we get started, Dan, why don't you give us about 20 or 30 seconds worth who you are and what you do. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Lee was, uh, my dad was in the hospitality industry his whole career and, uh, I followed in his footsteps. I really enjoyed service and, uh, grew up playing sports, loved, uh, interacting with people and leading and just all the dynamics that go into that. And hospitality is a great place to do that. So I, I went to Boston university. I studied political science cause that's what you study when you want to go into hospitality and really? I came down to, uh, well, not really. Okay. I had no I idea. Say, I say, wait a minute. <laughs> no, no. I was a, I was sort of a, I'm not going to say I was a lost soul. I didn't know. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But uh, I uh, worked at Disney in college uh, for a, a summer. And then after I graduated, um, I came back down to Walt Disney World and got my first full-time job uh, parking cars at Epcot because that's what you can do after you get a political science degree in hospitality. <laughs> it, uh I uh, did that for about six months and then I uh, had a, an incredible opportunity, a life-changing opportunity to go open Disneyland Paris as a management trainee uh, back in 1992. And uh, of course, they put me in parking because that was my, now my expertise, <laughs> although I like to call it international parking as there opposed to domestic parking. <laughs> and um, stayed over there for five years. Uh, my wife is from France and we met each other. We dated. We had a quick engagement and got married. And stayed over there for five years. And she worked for Disney for many years. And then we moved back to Florida in 1997. And I spent the next 22 years working at Walt Disney World. Uh, my whole career, 26-year career, 19 different jobs. Um, I'm, I'm big on getting lots of experiences. Disney's big on affording people lots of experiences if they want to get those. And then uh, left uh, two years ago, May 18th of uh, 2018, 
and uh, started, my wife and I, Valerie, started our own company, uh, Cockroll Consulting. We just uh, changed the name because we are we have a true partnership now running the company. And uh, we've been doing that for two years. So it's interesting. You went over to help launch Disneyland Paris, which is originally called Euro Disney, wasn't it? That's right. Euro Disney. And uh, Disney geek, what can I say? And then you came back not only with experience, but the wife. So <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Now, do you speak? Well, now you mentioned in the book that you don't, when you first met your wife and you first went to Paris, you didn't really speak French. Are you more fluent now? Do you guys speak French around the home or not so much? Uh, we do. All, all three of our kids are bilingual. And uh, my wife is an ace when it comes to language. She's uh, fluent in Spanish. Uh, she can um, speak Italian. She speaks um, French, English. So she's uh, she's she's really good at that. But yeah, after living there for five years, it was so painful to learn. I never wanted to lose it. So I practice it as much as I can at home. And then, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, employees from Haiti that work at Disney. And a lot of them speak either French or Haitian Creole. And so I got to continue to practice even after I got back from France. Nice. Well, we are in a very unusual time in our history. I don't think anybody uh, is on the planet today that could be who was around during the Spanish flu of 1918. So we don't really know, uh, you know, where this thing is going. But I will tell you, as a diehard bleeding the Mickey Mouse red. I mean, I love Disney World. I personally think they made a mistake. And now it may have been out of their control. But if I had the choice of opening with limited capacity, with wearing masks and social distancing, or waiting till January and not having that, I would have waited the January because... Number one, it gets really stinking hot, as you know, uh, in Florida in the summertime. And I don't think masks are, you know, a Disney thing. And I would have said, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. We're not going to make it mandatory. We highly recommend it. And I know on the Disney website, it does say, you know, you take your, you assume responsibility for COVID-19. So that's my personal thought. And there was a big Twitter thing not too long ago. And I said, I will not go to Disney again until the masks are gone. And I am afraid it may be over a year before the masks are removed from the park. So what are your thoughts on that now that you no longer work for Disney World? Well, I'll tell you, it is, it is complicated. Um, you know, not only, well, as we see across the world, every country, I mean, literally every state in the United States is handling this differently. And uh, I think we're going to have a much more consistent um, protocols the next time this happens, because we're going to learn everything. Like right now, people are guessing a lot of what needs to be done. Should you wear a mask, not wear a mask? How impactful is this really? Who's really susceptible to it? Can you get it twice? You know, there's lots of questions that are open. But I think Walt Disney World, because it's, um, you know, it is, it, it's always led with safety first. It really has a responsibility and a sort of a public relations uh, thing it has to think about of keeping people safe when they go to Walt Disney World. Um, you know, there are a lot of uh, the organizations and theme parks and hospitality um, centers around the world look to Disney as a leader in the industry. And so they, I think what I learned at work in there is we are always going to land on the more conservative side. Uh, because you want to keep that brand and that public trust. And then you get your learnings out of it, and then you start making decisions again. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's, there, there is no right answer. It's, uh, I always talk about the, the, the difference between problems and dilemmas. Problems have solutions, and dilemmas can only be managed. Yes. And uh, they're going to keep managing it. They're going to keep listening to the experts. 
They're going to keep listening to the guests. They're going to keep listening to the employees and uh, they'll, you know, they'll make their way through it, but they'll do it in a very methodical way and be uh, always err on the side of being more conservative and safe than not. Yeah, I get that. But here's the thing. Uh, the coronavirus, you can catch it and die. The flu, you can catch it and die. And we haven't been wearing masks from September to May every year. So a lot of people are like, well, how come we aren't wearing masks all the time? Apparently over in Japan and, and Shanghai and China, they wear masks like everybody wears masks all the time. So you're right. There is no answer to this thing. But I, I can't imagine that. I mean, you have to wear a mask in the park. But what are they going to do? I think Magic Kingdom can have like 30,000 people of 100,000 in there. What are you going to do if 10 or 15,000 people start removing their masks during the day? I mean, Disney cannot police that. And I think they got to be thinking about that because from reading your book and talking to your dad and really, you know, listening to a lot of Disney leaders, they're always thinking 5, 10, 15, 20 steps ahead. So they've got to have some kind of plan. If they see one or two people without the mask, this is how we handle it. But what if a, a thousand people stop wearing the mask? I mean, are they going to really start kicking a thousand people out a day of the parks? And so I, I got to believe that Disney's had these conversations behind, behind the scenes. Absolutely. It's good. Well, I can tell you that when I worked there, uh, we were the masters of scenario planning. I mean, thinking about every possibility um, and I'll give you a little, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember back if I had this in the book or not about the hall of presidents. Um, but when we, uh, you know, this is, this is going to be a similar case to when we opened uh, hall of presidents. So when we reopened it, you know, president Trump was president and that was obviously going to, uh, an opportunity for people to make a statement, whether they supported him or not. And, you know, we were, we did not want to become the lightning rod of the United States politically, right there at the Hall of Presidents. So um, we have some very talented, experienced security people. And uh, there was a gentleman who worked for the FBI uh, previously. And he said, you know what? We're going to treat this just like we do a presidential visit. He said, we are going to brainstorm every possible scenario that could happen. And then we're going to brainstorm every way we can uh, prevent that from happening and then we're going to brainstorm every way and plan on how we're going to react if and when it does happen. And uh, we went through all the scenarios because we said, you know what? We do not want, we don't want Disney to become the story of someone, you know, making a ruckus to get attention on whether they support the president or not at that attraction. So I can guarantee you there's going to be a ton of training going into this. There's going to be all kinds of scenario planning and uh, time will tell, you know, the first day they're going to report back what happened today, what happened on day two. And uh, they'll have to, you know, there's going to be changes. There always is. And you're going to have to make changes. And, you know, keeping a mask on a, a little kid, that's pretty challenging. And so they're going to have to figure out where do you enforce this and where do you not? Is it just going to be inside? Um, but they'll, they'll make their way through it. I'm, I'm sure everyone will be watching along the way and they'll land somewhere at, at a, a specific time. But I love the fact they're getting back open again. I mean, we do need to get back to life, right? Yes. And I was really, uh, you know, I'm, I wasn't surprised to read that when Disney Springs opened up, they were surveying people. Would you go to the theme parks if masks were required? And I'm like, when I read that, I'm like, that is so Disney. That is like, we're not just going to make the rules. We're going to ask the guests what they think. Now, I was kind of optimistically saying, maybe they're not going to require masks. Maybe they're going to, like my church, they strongly recommend it, but they're not mandatory. Uh, I don't wear a mask anywhere. I mean, I go to stores, shopping, whatever. I don't wear a mask anywhere. And But I was kind of sad they went down on the side of mandatory instead of we highly recommend it. Um, but, you know, like you say, they are a leader. They're not like Joe Schmo's uh, you know, uh, gas station down the corner. They are a highly sought-after 
emulated emulated company, and they've got to be careful with everything they do. And I really respect the, every decisions Disney's made, even if I didn't agree with it. I respect it because I know Disney's not in the knee jerk knee jerk reactions. Yeah, exactly. You're right. And I'll tell you, even if you don't like masks, you're definitely, I'm sure you're going to get, be able to get a mask with your favorite character on it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Disney knows how to optimize monetarily everything. And you know, one story in the book that really was interesting. You talked about the time you got called in the meeting because there was a horrific, horrific accident in an Australian theme park. And you, you wrote the book said, we don't have a park in Disney world, but the point is you guys had the flume ride uh, called splash mountain, the magic kingdom. And they wanted to say, Hey, could this possibly happen at our park? And so Disney is constantly looking out there and seeing, okay, this happened over this part of the world. Could this happen to us? And I think that's what makes Disney so great. Yeah. We call that, you know, a lot of companies use this. We call it near miss reporting. Um, A lot of uh, companies will react when an accident happens, uh, the, the water was, you know, the floor was wet and I slipped. I almost fell. Um, what we've over time learned at Disney is treat that like an accident. You just got lucky. You had good balance. But if you had fallen, you could have broken your arm. You could have really injured yourself. So now let's treat it like it was an accident. And how are we going to prevent that from happening in the future? And when you can take on issues like that with a very high level of urgency, you end up preventing lots of things. So we, over time, we've expanded that to, um, you know what, that was a, it was a competitor. It wasn't a Disney theme park, but we have flume rides. We have rides like that. So we, let's consider that a near miss. Could that happen in one of the uh, Disney uh, parks in the world? And we got on the call, we discussed it. We had the safety team go in, look at all those types of attractions and, and conclude whether that could happen or not. And it happened to be, no, it, it wouldn't happen. It's not the same manufacturer. They're not designed the same way. But there's no reason you shouldn't take advantage of those things. I think a lot of people just say, well, we were lucky, right? I did, you know, it didn't happen here. So let's just hope it doesn't happen in the future. Um, I think you should always be looking around, learning from every situation that happens and, and try to take that into account because you may be able to, you know, the life you save may be your own, as they say. Absolutely. I, I, once I read that in the book, I stopped and went to YouTube and searched it because I'd never heard of it before. And there's a 33 second clip where someone did a computer animation, what really happened. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Now, there, to be honest, to be, if you're not familiar with uh, Magic Kingdom and Disney World, their flumes, uh, flume ride is actually a flume. And then they have Cali Rapid, Rapid River, River Rapids. That's in Animal Kingdom, correct? That's right. So I think the ride that had the problem was more like Cali Rep, Rapid River, yeah, tongue twister, Cali Rep, Rapid River, you know what I'm talking Cali about. Cali River, Cali River Rapids. <laughs> that one. Um, so it's kind of like, it's not like the flume ride at Magic Kingdom. It's more like the Cali ride over at Animal Kingdom. But right. the, the way the simulation was, it was horrific because what happened is, is the ride stopped because I guess the water flow went down. The ride stopped and then another flume came behind it and knocked it up in the air. And some people, I guess it was so, the injuries are so horrific that a lot of the people who not only were there as they weren't cast members, they work at the, the park, but actually the first responders had to have grease counseling. I mean, it wasn't like they just like flipped over and drowned. It was like horrific because there was like moving parts and stuff like that. So I'd never heard of that before, but now I have thanks to your book. So, yeah. And once again, we're always benchmarking the world when it comes to our industry to make sure we're thinking through all those uh, possible outcomes and, and avoiding them. 
So let's talk about one thing I really enjoyed from your book. You talked about training and a quote from your book. You said, don't gravitate toward what you know best. Learn the ropes of what is least familiar. You were talking about when you took over a job, I think this was you were a VP or a GM, and you went and actually worked as a cast member. You put on the costume, you served the customers, you you know did the, the checkouts. Tell us about why that is so important. Yeah, well, you know, that's something that is a, um, that's a cultural thing at Disney. Uh, that, that is every, every leader who works there goes ahead and does what we call in costume experiences. And the same way we want to, you know, like you're saying before, we survey our guests at Disney Springs about whether they would wear a mask or not. You want to really, when you're leading a team of people and you're in hospitality, you want to take an empathetic approach to things, which means you want to put yourself in other people's shoes. I want to put myself in the shoes of a guest who has to wear a mask. I want to put my sh- myself in the shoes of a employee that has to do a certain job because if I'm going to lead those people, I need to have an understanding what their jobs are all about. So when I get into meetings and I'm trying to make decisions, financial decisions, decisions about our business, decisions about our standards, about equipment, I have a good understanding what the job's all about. So, um, you know, I did that, you know, basically every job I went into, I spent time, whether it was working in merchandise and learning how to ring up and, and jump on the registers, learning how to check a guest in at a front desk of a hotel, uh, working in housekeeping, learning how to clean a room, which is very humbling. Uh, and the more you can really get a, 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 an idea of how that works, you can make some really great improvements. And I think what happens is, uh, executives in a lot of companies, they say, well, once I get to this level, I'm now in the big thinker role. I'm the strategic person. I don't have to worry about those details anymore. I think that's a big mistake because where your customers are judging their experience is based on the experience, the interactions they're having with your frontline employees. And if you don't understand that experience, I don't care how strategic you are, how much technology you're bringing in. If you're not nailing that every day, um, you're going to be in trouble. So the best way to do it is get in the trenches and go work the jobs and see what people's opinions are, what works, what doesn't work. And uh, you get a ton of learning over time. And it really also helps you respect the job your employees are doing because it is not easy to be working on the front line in any job, much less a Walt Disney World. It's hot. It's busy. You're dealing with the public every day. And uh, you better you better respect those people doing that job because if they don't do it well, you're in trouble as an executive. You're gonna. You're not gonna get your goals either. Yes, and one of the things that you 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 cost me some money because you mentioned Bob Iger in your book, and so I went out and got his book, Ride of Ride of a Lifetime, and listening to it on my daily runs. And one of the things you talk about in the book is that when you used to walk the parks with him. He was a very uh, active listener. He would listen like he would actually, you felt heard. And a lot of leaders I used to work for back in the day, they, they heard you, but they didn't listen to you. And when you separated, they didn't, they didn't know what you said. So tell us a little bit about your relationship with Bob Iger. Yeah. Well, um, when you said when we used to walk the parks, that happened twice in my whole career. So I'll make sure (laughs) you make that clear to people, but he, um, I'll tell you. He was an impressive guy. Um, you know, we talk about role modeling, how important it is to role model what you want people to be like. That's how you kind of raise kids. You, you role model what you want them to be like, and they watch you and they emulate you. And uh, he either naturally did that or someone told him over time because when he showed up, he was never taking his, his phone out of his pocket. He was never checking his email. When I was walking with him, he basically the rule was whoever's leading the tour and it does it's not hierarchy whoever is the person in charge leading the tour he's going to be at their hip 
And so, you know, when I walked the park, I had my boss and his boss and his boss with them. But Bob Iger was at my hip because I was leading the tour and he listened. He was right next to you. He would ask questions and not ask questions in a way of let me see if you know what you're doing, but ask questions in a way of help me learn more about what you're doing here. Um, and the only time he'd step away is because he would d- take a photo with a, an, a guest or he'd shake hands with one of our employees and um, he would walk as fast or as slow as you did. And that focus wow. uh, just made you feel like it made you feel great. It's like you're the only one I'm thinking about right now. And uh, once that happens, you kind of do an inventory of your own leadership you say, you know what, if he can be doing that, because this guy's got a big job, mm. maybe I can focus a little bit more and pay attention, not be distracted when I'm spending time with people. And it was just a big sign of respect. And it was very impressive of him being able to do that. I was, uh, It was great. One of the things I learned from your dad is I always heard that everyone who's a cast member, whether you're a Bob Iger or you're a janitor, if you see trash, you pick it up. And I asked your, your father, I said, is that true? He goes, yeah, you're expected. It doesn't matter what your title is. If you see garbage on the floor at any park, any restaurant, you pick that, you bend down and pick it up. You're never too good to do that. And I was really impressed by that's the culture that Disney uh, wants all their cast members to, to um, take. Yeah. And I think Walt Disney, he understood very well the power of role modeling. And he said, you know what, if we're, if we're, we're all custodians, and if we're going to create a, a clean place for people to spend time together, enjoy themselves together, we all have to work towards that common purpose, which is which is bringing these you know magical memories to life. And no one is above that. Everyone has to contribute. And uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty cool place when everyone follows those same guidelines. Now you brought it up, so I got to ask you to get into this a little bit more. The when you were cleaning rooms, you said it was a very humbling experience. I, I read it in the book. So would you share with us a little bit about uh, why it was so humbling? Because I really enjoyed that part of your book. Yeah, well, you know, I, I got so many learnings when I did this. I mean, the first thing what I learned was um, the housekeepers um, who work in the resorts. And, and the, my, my first big experience was at the All-Star Movies Resort, which is one of our value resorts. And each housekeeper, you know, has to clean 18 rooms a day. Now, some of those are checkouts and some of those are stayovers. And a stayover is usually less work than a checkout because you don't have to change all the sheets and do a deep clean like you do for a checkout. But um, you, uh, it's, it's a lot of work. And what I learned over time is the housekeepers who are really good at it had a system right? So they would, uh, you know, on Mondays, they would clean the fans in the room. And on Tuesdays, they would really deep clean the mirrors. On Thursdays, they would clean the, the bathtubs. And on, so they always had a, they always had a rotation so they could, you know, invest in these rooms and keep them clean over time. They, say they took real ownership around them. But, you know, it's a very physical job and you have to be um, um, organized. You have to think about what order you're, you're bringing everything in and out of the room. Uh, some days if you have more checkouts than others, you have to, you know, you, some people may help you. And so you have to have a good relationship with other people. Um, and, uh, so it was, um, that I, I just thought it was going to be one of those jobs where, where people are just miserable. But what I found was the great housekeepers, they loved their jobs. And I was kind of jealous of them because they went home every night and for them, it was personal. It's like, wow. I am here to have clean rooms for families to come enjoy their vacation together. And the ironic thing was, um, you know, when you work in a hotel, you're always doing room inspections as a general manager, you're walking rooms. And uh, I was always surprised. I thought all the housekeepers when I went out to the hotel would kind of hide and not want their rooms to be inspected. But it turns out 
they'd be on their balconies. Dan, come look at my rooms. They, <laughs> they were so they were so proud of how clean they were. And so what I started to learn is don't look at the rooms of the, the, the housekeepers who are calling you. Find the ones who aren't calling you and go look at their rooms. <laughs> but, but there was a, there was just this personal pride, and they just these these housekeepers they love cleaning, they love cleanliness, they love things being orderly. And uh, I really learned a lot. They they really had a high uh, respect for what they did, and by default, I had a high respect for what they did also because they really created incredible magical experiences for our guests. Well, I could tell you, I have stayed at a couple of Disney hotels. I stayed at Pop Century a couple times, and you come back from the park, you're exhausted, you're you know you're sweaty, and the room looks like like it was just built that day. It is so clean. Everything is you know you can leave stuff on your on your your bed there. Everything's made up, cleaned, and they really I can understand what you say where they take pride. I mean, every time I came back to my room, it was spick and span clean, and of course. A lot of people understand Bob Iger, well, he's no longer CEO, but Bob Iger was the head of, uh, of Walt Disney World. But the people on the front lines, the people cleaning your rooms or at the attractions or doing the shows or walking the parks or taking your, your tickets or magic bands or whatever, these are the people that represent the face of Disney. And I know that Bob Iger and all the executives get that. They are the frontline people, and that's why they want to have people who are happy. My, my, my mom and dad used to work for Disney World over at Hollywood Studios for about 10 years, and they would say, well, at least back then, I don't know how it is now, I haven't been in the park in a couple of years, but they said if you were miserable, they didn't want you to interact with the public. You know, you heard people calling in sick. I guess if you had a bad day, Disney would rather have you call in miserable because th- that reflects it. Because every da- every day is someone's first day at the park, and you don't want them to meet a, a miserable employee. Yep, absolutely. And that's what my book's all about. It starts with leadership. Leadership has a responsibility to create an environment and create a culture where people are going to feel like they belong. They're going to feel that they have an opportunity to thrive and they have an opportunity to do well and they're treated right. And if they do that, they deliver great service. The the guest rates it an excellent experience. They come back again and again. They recommend it. And that's the business model. Yes. I, I Like I said, I love Disney, but I got I to gotta put you on the spot here. I want you to rank the four Disney World parks in order. I got a feeling what your number one's going to be. But mine, I haven't been to the park in a couple of years. So mine right now, I always have a soft spot for Magic Kingdom. I, I love Magic Kingdom. It's it's It was the first park. It's the most popular park as far as attendance, as, as far as I know anyone in the world. That's followed by Epcot. There's something magical about Epcot, even though half it's torn up right now because of the construction. And then I had to go Hollywood Studios because my parents work there. Uh, I haven't been there since they have the Toy Story Land and all that new stuff. So when I'm rating that at number three, it was a half day park and then animal kingdom. So uh, taking out, you know, they used to work for Disney world for 26 years. How would you rate the parks right now? Yeah. So on a, a, a personal level, Epcot for me is number one. Uh, and I just, my family has so many life experiences there. Um, my wife, Valerie, she was the first one to work for the company before any of us. Uh, oh, she really? The French, yep. She worked at the French pavilion uh, back in 1987 um, I was a senior in high school. Don't let her listen to this podcast. I don't bring that up very often. But she was working uh, on the uh, fellowship program, and um, she worked there for a year. And then um, I came um, about four years later. My first full-time job was parking cars at Epcot. And then I um, 
went to France. And when I came back, my first job back was I was an operations manager of the American Adventure in the Japanese pavilions. Uh, I opened Test Track. Um, I ran Spaceship Earth and the, the, the operations in that area. Um, and then I came back to Epcot in 2009 as the vice president. So um, that, you know, I had, a, I had a great career there. Valerie worked in the French Pavilion. She was the, um, the merchandise assortment manager for merchandise for Epcot for the Millennium Celebration. And um, our son waited tables at the uh, French uh, Chefs de France restaurant when he was in college uh, for a summer. Um, our daughter worked in horticulture and pulled weeds at Epcot. Um, and so everyone, we've, everyone in the family's worked at Disney at some point and we've, a lot of us worked at Epcot. So that's, you know, for me, that was like, I, I, I wouldn't have my, probably wouldn't have my family right now if we hadn't all worked there. <laughs> um, Hollywood studios. I love the movies. I love movies. I've always loved movies growing up. And back when I was on the college programs, the Hollywood studios had just opened and I just thought it was such a cool place. Just the, all the. The, the great movie ride oh, and everything yes. they I'm so sad on. that's gone. The great movie ride. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was a great one. And then the um the other attraction was um oh gosh, it's where froze the frozen sing along is now. Um it was um like celebrity TV. I should remember that. You you'd actually be on the Lucy show. Oh uh, you'd be on Golden Girls. Um that was just a great show they had back in the day. So Anyway, it was, uh, it was, I just love movies and they captured in such a great environment there. Um, Magic Kingdom, obviously, just that was a, a highlight of my career, being able to lead that park. And then Animal Kingdom fourth, someone has to come in fourth. I love Animal Kingdom. I never worked there, um, but it's, uh, it's a pretty neat place too. The one thing I didn't like about Animal Kingdom, it is like going to Africa. And there's there when I went there last time, about five or six years ago, there's no AC except from the restaurants. And you go in summertime, well, welcome to Africa because it gets really hot and you standing those queue lines for Expedition Nevers and whatnot and walking the park. It's a beautiful park. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it is hot. And I'm sure when you were parking cars, when you started Epcot, uh, you probably parked them in the summer. Am I correct? Sure. Yeah. I bet it get kind of a tad bit warm out there. It's a, it's a hot place. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot of upside to being in central Florida. There's many more upsides and downsides, but that heat and is, uh, and it, we're seeing it. I mean, there's, as the population is getting older and grandparents and baby boomers are bringing their families, uh, we're, we're having to deal with that because it's a very, uh, challenging environment to go on vacation. In. And I think as time goes on, they're going to constantly come up with new ways to make sure they're taking care of people from a safety perspective. And of course, the parking lot, all you have is the sun hitting the parking lot, which bounces up into your face. So it's like walking on an oven or a grill, if you will. So it's really warm. Did you ever uh, drive the trams? Oh, yeah. I thought those yeah, things, we, when I was younger, I thought those things were the coolest thing. They were cool. And actually, if you've seen the, if you have, if you've been here in the past few years, they, they came up with new cabs, which are even cooler now. But um, they, uh, yeah, they were great. You, we, you get trained in parking, then eventually you get trained to drive the trams, and then uh, you'd work at the auto plaza, and the trams are great. And the great thing about the, driving the trams is if you're driving, that little cabin is air-conditioned, so that oh. was sweet. 
And then uh, if you're on the back doing the spiel, it wasn't air conditioned, but you definitely got that breeze. So that was a that was a nice gig to be on the trams. Well, one of the victims of COVID nineteen is the fellowship program. I really liked going to the World Showcase, and you go to the various countries, France and Japan or whatever, and they would speak the the language because they are actually from the countries. But unfortunately, in this time, you know, you may not be able to get a flight from those countries. So when Disney reopens in uh, next month in July, they're not going to have that in the beginning, which is going to be really weird. First, you're going to have the mask, and number two, you're going to go to French, or France and not see someone speaking French. So, But that's just the, the way it is. I mean, I'm sure it's eventually going to change, but when they first open, those people won't be there, which I, I, I'm really going to miss seeing. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll get some locals. I've already uh, made a couple calls. You know, our son, Tristan, he's 19. He's living at home right now. He's a freshman at the University of Denver. And I called over. I said, hey, we got a French kid over here who, who would like to work. So we'll see if we can sl- slide him in over there. Excellent. Well, why don't you talk to us about the four key areas? That's something that goes through the entire book you talk about, that Disney has these four key areas. And I really liked uh, if you could talk about the story with Katie at the Spaceship Earth, because she had to make a decision based on these four key areas. Yeah. So the um, the four keys, we also call them our four quality standards. But if you work at Walt Disney World, you know them as the four keys. And um, the great thing about it is if you go ask any employee at Walt Disney World what the four keys are, I guarantee you they're going to know them and they're going to know them in the priority order. So the reason we have them is um, because we want people, we want to empower the employees to be able to make decisions on their own. And what a lot of organizations do, either they tell people, if you don't know the answer, call a manager problem is a manager is never around or the manager takes too long to find one. And sometimes you have to make an instant decision in the operation. Um, and then some organizations say, you know what, we're going to build a training guide and we are going to anticipate every situation you may ever run into and we're going to tell you how to react. And that doesn't work either because in the hospitality industry, when you're dealing with the public, every situation is different. And so we, instead of trying to give people a, a rote list of decisions where you're never going to be able to train them on every situation, we said, let's give everyone criteria. Let's give them a criteria and protocols of things they need to think about when they're making a decision. And if we can align that, um, we'll, we're going to be in a much better position to empower people to make decisions and, and have them feel confident to make those decisions. So we call those the four keys. Uh, they're in priority order, safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency. And those are the four things we focus on all the time. So your the spaceship Earth example, um, safety is the number one most important thing. So whether people need to wear masks or um, the you know the example in the book is you have a family stepping up. They're with the, the their grandmother. She looks like she's not as stable. Maybe her balance isn't as good. And that when that 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 um, they get onto the attraction spaceship Earth with the the rotating sidewalk there, you have to step onto that moving platform. Um, that cast member has to make a decision instantaneously. All right, is, can this person fall? Does it look like they might fall? If that's the case, I have to sacrifice courtesy, which means I have to slow the attraction down and let people wait a little bit longer. I'm going to have to sacrifice show because there's probably going to be a spiel that's going to come on inside the attraction and say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your patience. We're uh, we're temporarily stopping the attraction, blah, blah, blah. And then efficiency is number three and number four key which basically says if I, if I slow the attraction down, I'm not going to put as many people through that attraction. So, but we give our cast members permission to sacrifice the four keys 
one over the other by priority. And so because safety is number one, they can make that decision. They don't have to call a manager. They don't have to ask for permission. They can make that decision. And um, I'll tell you, the cool thing is at Walt Disney World, the executives, the senior managers, the frontline managers, the frontline cast members all use the four quality standards to make decisions. And that creates a sense of alignment. And so what that does for you is when you have a situation there's a good chance that any one of the 74,000 cast members that works at Walt Disney World is going to make a similar decision based on their critical thinking because we've given them sort of the answer key and they can apply that and make a, a great decision. So let's talk about the transition. You reached the point where you said, you know, Disney's great. I learned a lot. I, I helped build this company. So walk us through the transition when you decided it was time to go out on your own. Yeah. So I got home one night and, uh, Valerie, my wife said, uh, are you enjoying work? Are you enjoying Disney? And of course, you know, I smiled. I had that gleam on my, my tooth. Bing. <laughs> yes. I love it there. It's magical. But then, um, we started talking and for a, a full year, I thought about that question and you know, I was oh, getting wow. older. I, it took me, I mean, this was way a long time ago. We talked that we literally talked about this for a year and, um, it was terrifying because no one leaves Disney. You retire there <laughs> or you just die there. <laughs> that's, that's not a very positive thought, but you know, you don't leave. And it's just, it's such a great place to work. But Valor and I, we, we talked about it over and over and over again. Um, you know, I, obviously I had a great role model, a great mentor and in, in my dad who'd worked there and he retired in 2006 at 63 years old. And he started a whole nother career writing books and speaking. And I talked to him, I talked to some other people and he was very positive and said, Dan, you, you, you'll be, you could do tons of stuff outside of Disney. So I looked at some other companies out there, but I realized there weren't any companies that were going to be as good as Disney. So if I was going to do something differently, it was going to have to be on my own terms. And uh, finally, after a year of conversations, uh, Valor and I made the decision. Our youngest, we have three kids. Our youngest was headed off to college. We were going to be empty nesters. And so um, made the decision to go in one day and let him know that I would be resigning. And uh, we had a couple months of a, a transition period. We brought in the, the guy who replaced me, Jason Kirk. We spent a lot of time together. I wanted to have a really smooth transition, but it was emotional and it was terrifying. Because although Disney's such a great place, when you work there, you just don't know if you know anything. You don't know if you have any value in the outside world. And so we made the leap. And um, it's, been, uh, it's been great ever since. Every day we've worked so hard and I'm learning every day. As I say, I went from a, a, a corporate executive to a scrappy entrepreneur. <laughs> and uh, uh, Valerie and I, funny story, you know, we've been married for 27 years. But just in the past year and a half, well, the past year, We've learned to not want to kill each other, get divorced because we're working closely together now. We'd never worked together. We had always been married. We never worked together. So we had a whole nother growth spurt of, okay, let's learn how to respect each other professionally. And we've, we've hit the sweet spot now and we're, we're, we're clicking. She's great. She's disciplined. She puts my presentations together. She helps me with my speeches. She gives me lots of feedback on how to improve. Um, and, and vice versa. I have my role in the company. So um, I think probably the biggest thing that we've gotten out of it is the freedom. You know, people don't realize when you work at Disney, um, you know, I, in 26 years, I spent one New Year's Eve with her. Um, wow. You know, Christmas morning, I was out the door early to get to work. Uh, Easter, weekends, you know, it's it's a demanding place. It's a great place to work, but it's demanding. And so we decided we were willing to trade out 
that, you know, belonging to such a great organization and the, I guess you'd say the, um, um, the security of working for a big company to the freedom we have now. Now with freedom becomes responsibility. Like if we don't do anything today, nothing's happening tomorrow. You know? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the world of the entrepreneur. But uh, we've, we've, uh, we've grown and we've learned so much in the past two years. And it has been a blessing to have the courage and the, the, um, you know, her support to, to, make the, to make the move. Yeah, up until COVID-19, I think the only time Disney ever closed is when there's an imminent hurricane or right, like right after September 11th, or maybe as they closed early in September 11th, I think uh, Bob Iger talks right. about in his book. So they're, they're there 24, not 24 hours a day, just one day in May at Magic Kingdom, but they're there 365 days a year, 366 days a year in leap year. And, you know, like you said, Christmas morning, you don't open up gifts with your family. They're, you're out the door. And I don't think people understand that you go on vacation to Disney World and you, you get to enjoy the world, but you understand that the park doesn't close. There's, they don't say we're close, like Chick fil A here in Houston. We close on Sunday. That's not the case at Disney World. And, you know, like I said, you can learn a lot. But it does take a lot out of you. So, what do you and Valerie do? What is what is your driving mission now with your your company? Yeah. So our um, our whole mission is to help other companies help people solve problems and become better. And uh, we've had an incredible education, you know, working for Disney for so long. Between us, we've had forty one years of experience there, and so we're able to take what we've learned uh, not only from Disney but living internationally raising three kids, um, and it's all the experiences we've had. And uh, we're into all kinds of stuff now. I have a podcast called Come Rain or Shine. I've done over 100 episodes, and we, we do them every week. They come out every Thursday morning. Uh, Valerie and I have developed leadership workshops called The Method to the Magic. We, we teach companies how to put uh, sustainable processes in place to deliver world-class service and build great cultures. Uh, wrote the book. Um, I have a video leadership series I put out there. We've created webinars around um, leadership. We do consulting. We're consulting with a hotel company in Croatia and a train company in Peru um, and uh, a couple other companies. Um, I do executive coaching. Uh, so we we just we have our hands in all kinds of different things. And um, we like to keep it lean and mean. It's just the two of us. We have a handful of people we contract to help us with specialty with graphic design and website design and that kind of thing. But we like to keep it simple. And uh, when people call us, they say, well, look, I'm, gonna, I'm, in the, I'm an electric company or I'm in the concrete business or I'm an accounting firm. And I'm like, if you have employees and you have customers and you're trying to make money, we can, we can work with you because that's uh, all these companies are the same when it comes to that. They, they may be in different areas, but they're delivering a service, they're delivering a product, and they need to create an environment where their employees can thrive. And that's what uh, that's what we're great at teaching. Excellent. We're, how can we find out more about you and your company? Yeah, so we have a brand new website we just launched about five days ago, and uh, the uh, Valerie was on the project. She she led the project to get that redone. So I have dancockrell.com, which was my first website we've had for a couple of years, and we just launched cockrellconsulting.com. And uh, it really it's we have some partners on there. Lee's on there. We have we include some of his books, podcasts. And it gives a much broader look at the kind of things we do, if you want to check that out. And then um, I'm selling my book right now, culture-kingdom.com. And uh, you can go to any of the websites and find the link there. Uh, it comes out August 11th, but uh, I've launched and do, I'm doing pre, pre-release right now. 
And um, when you buy a copy of the book, you get an autographed copy of the book. And uh, I, I mail it right from my house. Well, I want to thank you for sending me a copy of your book. It was a very good book. Uh, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm a little biased to you and your dad's books because you guys work from Disney. So anybody that sends me stuff from Disney, I'm kind of geeked out over. So, But it is a really well-written book. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for being on the show today. If anybody uh, said, man, there's a lot here, guess what? You can listen to it over again because Dan, uh, Dan talked about a lot. So, Dan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Mark. Best of luck, and everyone be safe out there. And just before we go, don't forget to head on over to my website, mrproductivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com, and get my top five productivity tips for absolutely free. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast when you do. It allows other people to find the podcast so I can help other people. And you can take it one step further for me. If you would tell two or three people about the show, I would be really, really grateful. Thank you again for listening. Until we meet again, my friend, go be productive.